And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to speak directly into at least one of your ears. I am your host, Jason Kleberg, and this is the Force 5 Podcast, a show where normally... I challenge my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. But this week went a little bit differently because I had a guest drop out at the last minute, and Peter Beta from the middle-class film class stepped up to the plate. But instead of coming up with the topic himself, we just rolled with what the prior guest had planned, and that was top five possession scenes, excluding the obvious exorcist. Pete was last on back in March to talk top five drinking scenes, so go check that out as well afterwards. We're going to get to our list here in just a few minutes, but first, got a couple things that I've seen in the past week that I want to chop it up with you about. First thing I saw this week that I want to talk about is 1985's Wheels of Fire. Wheels of Fire. Attack! They're ruthless animals on a desert rampage, and they've got his sister. Put her down. She's not going to be the same, Trace. I've seen what these people can do to a woman. No ordinary man could save her. But this is no ordinary man. Perishes, Mike. The fortress. Fire! One last hero making one last stand. We're going to get her back. This is the future. In a post-apocalyptic future, a ruthless vehicular gang called the Highway Warriors is conquering the wasteland through murder and plunder. During a raid, they kidnap the sister of a road warrior named Trace, and as such, he brings hell down upon them. In the early to mid-1980s, there was a swath of Mad Max clones as they were cheap and easy to make. Serio H. Santiago was the king of these low-budget wasteland films, directing five of them within six years. Striker, Future Hunters, Equalizer 2000, Dune Warriors, and perhaps the wildest of them all, Wheels of Fire. Everything about this film is a Mad Max ripoff, but there are a few things that help Wheels of Fire stand out from the rest of the pack. First, with five of these under his belt as he filmed this, the filmmaking is quite sharp. The camera moves within shots and really tries to bring you into the action. The cinematography is also quite good, featuring several wide shots that highlight the massive amount of extras on set in certain scenes. Everything flows nicely and the film is never boring. The action is pretty typical of these kinds of films, lots of bullets flying into the void and a ton of extras rolling to the ground, assumed dead or on fire. We never really see any bullets penetrate and don't really see any blood, probably because they would need to wash the outfit and it, and it most likely needed to be used in the next scene. There's an impressive use of a flamethrower in the film, and a lot of people get lit up, including one gaffe in which a blonde guy with long flowing hair pokes his head out, and seconds later when he's lit on fire, he's wearing a full fire suit, hooded stocking cap, and all. The second thing that sets Wheels of Fire apart is just how weird the film gets. Of course, it's filled with your typical Mad Max tropes. It's a world filled with ratty vagabonds and modified roadsters outfitted with spikes and filled to the brim with sweaty, gun-toting leather daddies. But this film also has a breed called Sand People who live underground and capture humans through trap doors on the side of the highway to eat them. And it's got a woman with psychic powers. Gary Watkins plays Trace, a Max Rokotansky cosplayer who aims to get his sister back from Scourge, the evil leader of a gang of ruffians. 
Watkins is about as wooden as it gets and shows no range even as terrible things happen to those he supposedly likes around him. After someone close to him dies, he's just like, see ya, with a smirk on his face and all the emotion of a person getting into the car for a Costco run. Linda Weismeyer plays his sister Arlie. She once posed for Playboy, and the filmmakers definitely take advantage of that. She spends at least half of her screen time topless, including being strapped spread-eagle to the hood of Scourge's car as he drives through the desert wasteland in an attempt to get rid of her tan lines. The bad guys are cut-and-paste leather-donned NPCs, and the main villain doesn't really get a chance to shine, but I will say that his death is pretty funny. Filipino Mad Max ripoffs are a lot different than the Italian ones, and I must say that you could do a lot worse here. The action is fine and just weird enough that I was entertained throughout its runtime. So if you're looking for a good Mad Max ripoff or a, you want to get into that post-apocalyptic genre and you're sick of Mad Max for some reason, go check out Wheels of Fire. I also saw the new Ryan Reynolds vehicle, Free Guy. Buddy, if we're not real, doesn't that mean that nothing you do matters? I am sitting here with my best friend trying to help him get through a tough time. Now, if that's not real, I don't know what is. Millie, I know this world is just a game, but this place, these people, that's all I have. Thanks, guy. Who is this guy? This character in the video game Free City has been turning heads by being the good guy. Who is Blue Shirt Guy? You're absolutely right. Who is he or she, indeed? This loser is ruining the game, man. I don't care if he's Arnold freaking Schwarzenbader. Terminate him. A bank teller starts to realize that he's a background character, or NPC, non-playable character, in an open-world video game and starts to build sentience, as two programmers in the real world work to gain proof that remnants of their old game still lies within the code of Free City. Free Guy feels like a few good ideas that are tossed into a blender, and what came out was a superficial crowd pleaser that has some fun with its premise, even if a lot of it makes no sense, but not enough to keep me wanting more that ends in the corniest and most predictable way possible. It's also a film that doesn't quite seem to understand who its audience is and tries to pander to everyone and no one at the same time. I'll start with the second point because I feel like that's the toughest to absorb. There are two kinds of people who are going to see this movie, those familiar with open-world video games and gaming culture, and those who aren't. I'm familiar with video game culture, and that means I'm going to get references to terrible heads of gaming studios, like Blizzard, for example, Twitch streamers, in-game mechanics, HUDs, and the sacred mid-game celebration called teabagging, all of which make their way into Free Guy. It seems like the creators understand these things, but at the same time also disregard many aspects of gaming. Like in a truly cinematic scene of having a programmer just hit a couple of keys to influence the in-game world and save our hero. Uh, the bad guys using god mode in, an, in a highly ineffective way. Or taking into account what the player's character on screen is capable of and how they perform those actions using their controller or keyboard. Free Guy then curiously shits on hardcore gamers by reiterating the stereotype of the mid-twenties weeb still living in mom's basement while jerking daily loads into a crispy gym sock between short breaks of pretending to be someone way cooler than they actually are. The lines of dialogue for those who aren't gamers are even more insulting. There's a way to bridge the gap and explain things to audience members who may be clueless, but you should assume that they've seen a movie before. If there's one line in the film that illustrates how stupid the filmmakers think the audience is, during one fight scene in the film, Guy reaches into his virtual bag of tricks, looks down, and cue lightsaber sound. 
We see the blue light emerge and the familiar weapon appears, even backed by the Star Wars theme. The theater crowd inevitably pops and we get a few reaction shots from people in the movie watching this on streams. We have audible gasps. Now this is already dumb in the game world, as people playing this game would surely know that there were Star Wars items within the game, either as secondary purchases or just for marketing purposes. This would not be the first time that they'd seen this item appear, but then the film gets even dumber, as the last person who we see reacting to the weapon's appearance is Millie, our main protagonist who is obviously familiar with the game, and not only does she seem surprised, she says out loud by herself in the comfort of her own home, a lightsaber. Now who the fuck is this line for? If you're sitting in the theater watching Free Guy, I highly doubt you saw the lightsaber and thought, wait, what's that? Only to be relieved moments later when Millie said, it's a goddamn lightsaber, like, I'm glad that got cleared up. Filmmakers need to stop treating their audience like we're idiots. As stupid as we might be, we all know what a lightsaber is, I guarantee it. Also, no one would say that out loud while watching a stream from their couch. Now I know it sounds like I'm shitting on Free Guy, but it does have its moments that are pretty fun. If you're not a fan of Ryan Reynolds' personality, you're probably going to find him a bit grating, but I thought he was fine. It did feel a little bit weird having literally everyone commenting on how hot he was considering that he produced the film and stars in it, but that's a minor eye roll and not really a complaint. Lil Rel Howery plays Guy's friend Buddy, and although he doesn't get a lot of screen time, I love that dude, so the more of him the better. There are some great cameos here that I won't spoil, along with some confusing ones. Certain people only voice characters for mere seconds and don't even need to be here, like Tina Fey voicing a vacuuming mom for some reason off screen. They're fun winks, and I'm sure Reynolds called in some favors, but they could have done a lot more for these people. The worst part of the film is Taika Waititi, who plays Antoine, the evil head of the gaming company responsible for Free City. I'm not sure what the hell he was doing here, but he comes off as a complete caricature from what seems like a different movie with absolutely no redeeming qualities. In a virtual world in which anything can happen, I do wish that they did a little bit more with the open world game concept. The action all felt a little underwhelming and could have been smarter and definitely more mind-blowing. Although the appearance of Dude, a late-stage villain, was pretty fun. I also have one more minor complaint about the film, and that's the driving force behind the protagonists, because they believe that Antoine and his company stole the technology from their game, but at the same time, it's said that he bought their game. So that part was a little confusing to me. It, I think it would have been more interesting if they had just simply suspected that Antoine stole their technology and Keyes was simply working there to uncover the truth. Free Guy is enjoyable. I really feel like it could have been so much more, but if you're a fan of games like Grand Theft Auto and Fortnite and you're looking for a little fun, uh, a light film with pretty, f pretty visuals and fun gags, this one should hit the spot. The second half I think is much better than the first. I was very bored through the first half um, and, and it kind of picks up after about the 50 minute mark. Unfortunately, it's dumb when it didn't have to be, blatantly insults its audience and has an ending that's about as sappy as it gets. Still better than Ready Player One, though. Free Guy proves that movies aren't perfect, but hey, life's not perfect. And chances are, you've got a memory or two you'd like to forget. That one-night stand that turned into an 18-year problem. The instructor at the gym that your wife rode like a pony. 
Barry Bonds, unable to throw Sid Bream out at home plate in Game 7 of the 1992 National League Championship game. M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening. Up until now, all you could hope for was some convenient amnesia, a la Terry Bauer style. Today's sponsor, however, has changed all that. If you've got some memories you'd like to get rid of, Lacuna Inc. can help. Remember the Alamo. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But why remember a destructive love affair? Here at Lacuna, we have perfected a safe, effective technique for the focused erasure of troubling memories. Our patented non-surgical procedure will rid you of painful memories and allow you a new and lasting peace of mind you never imagined possible. Don't forget, with Lacuna, you can forget. When you call Lacuna Inc., tell them that the Force 5 podcast sent you, and as a bonus, they'll erase all of your memories of the first 60 episodes of the show so you can listen to them all over again. Yes, you can hear the show go from bad to mediocre with a fresh set of ears. You're welcome. Now let's talk possessions. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. Today, my returning guest is the co-host of the Middle Class Film Class, Pete Abeta. You may remember him from episode 40 when we talked top five drinking scenes. How's it going, Pete? Oh, it's going gangbusters. Happy to be here. I am happy to have you. I'm especially happy to have you because you're bailing me out of a jam here. I had a guest lined up. We had a topic lined up. And that person bailed out at the last minute, so you are stepping in into this person's place. And I'm excited to see what you came up with for your list, because literally, like, it's been less than a day mm. <laughs> that you've had to <laughs> uh, think about this list. And most people have, like, a week or or month in advance, and you've had just one day, so it should be fun. Uh, we're going to be talking top five possession scenes. Yeah. Now, last time we talked was in March. And in March, neither one of us had been to a theater for like a year. And since then, we've both been out to see things on the big screen. Uh, Middle class film class is going to the theater again. What's the best thing that you've seen in theaters since you've been back into movies? Ooh, what have I seen? Um, my f my favorite thing that I've seen has been The Green Knight. And I was much anticipated movie that I was super excited for. Um, and it didn't land nearly as perfectly when I saw it in theaters. I was, I was left wanting a little bit more, probably because I'd overhyped it. Um, <clears throat> but David Lowry doesn't really speed spoon feed you very much as an audience goer. Uh, so there was a lot of it that I'm like, who is this guy? I didn't even realize until the movie was over that that was uh, King Arthur at the beginning. <laughs> it's like, wait a second, who, that's King Arthur, okay. So I rewatched it at home. We rented it, uh, uh, The Love of My Life, didn't wasn't able to go to the theater with me, so we we rented it at home when it was available for rent and rewatched it, and it's oh, it's so good. I loved it. I'm glad to hear you like it. I am looking forward to seeing it. I have not seen it yet, but it is high on my list. I just didn't get a chance to get out into theaters and watch it. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, today we're doing top five possession scenes, and again, I know you came into this late. When yeah. you think about when, like when I sent you that topic, possession scenes. How do you define it? Well, you know, there's movies that are 100% about possessions. It's like its own subgenre now in, in horror. It's the possession of Emily Rose and the last possession of Deborah Logan or whatever. And mm -hmm. I think of those movies like their own thing. 
but like a good standalone possession scene in a movie is almost like a moment of insanity that you you can't really expect what's going to happen next which i like that you almost get as a as a writer you get free range to just do literally whatever you want and sure there's a couple on my list that break the mold and there's a couple that are definitely sticking to the mold but done in a really fun, you know interesting way so i i went a little bit outside the box and i didn't do any movies that are sorry i did four out of five of my movies are not possession movies quote unquote so um i i hope that we don't match up on anything because i would like i like to have a nice big list i left off some of the obvious ones as i normally do so we'll see if we have any of the big hitters on here cool my instinct for possession was characters who are infused with the soul or being of another living thing like something gets sure. another living thing that's taken control of it uh, you know there were some that i was like oh this is gonna be super clever and i was like that's not really a possession so i have some <laughs> honorable mentions that are outside of your definition but i think all of mine stick to that as well cool well i'm looking forward to your list what do you say pete you want to get into top five possession scenes yeah let's do it you know what's gonna happen you know what's happening here right now you know what's gonna happen Top five possession scenes. Pete Abeda, what do you got for number five? My number five, top five on the top five possession scenes is going to be the intro scene to a movie that a lot of people don't like, but I have a soft spot for Constantine from 2005. Mr. Constantine, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I know the circles you travel in, the occult, exorcisms. Easy there, hero. That's Dragon's Breath. I thought you couldn't get it anymore. Oh, I, uh, I know a guy who knows a guy. I thought that you could at least point me in the right direction. Yeah, okay, sure. Please. What if I told you that God and the devil made a wager for the souls of all mankind? No direct contact with humans. That would be the rule. Just influence. See who would win. Demons stay in hell. Angels in heaven. They call it the balance. I need to see what you see. You do this, there's no turning back. You see them. They see you. Understand? This is the very, very first scene you get, um, I believe, if I not remember correctly. It's been a few years since I've seen it. Um, but you're introduced to Constantine and his, uh, his assistant, uh, played by Shia LaBeouf. And constantly, Constantine, of course, is done by um, uh, Keanu Reeves. So Constantine is a demon hunter potential, like a hitman for the church. Uh, great premise. I like, I, I like it so much. I think it's a comic book series. Um, but mm -hmm. he's essentially dispatched to this home in, I want to say, Mexico. And there is a young girl who's possessed. All the classic signs. She's got the black eyes and the you know dark veins po popping out all over her body. And she's speaking in tongues and kind of writhing all over the place in the classic white nightgown and all the parents are clutching their rosaries and stuff and Constantine comes up with a bunch of swagger you know cigarette hanging out of his mouth like a badass and en enlists a group of uh, four strong men to hold this full-length mirror over the bed for an unknown reason he's all business doesn't explain and um, he's literally straddling on top of this poor girl who's going through it 
And a couple cool things happen, which make this scene very cool for me is number one, he tells everybody who's in the room, don't look at her, avert your eyes. And um, one of the, one of the volunteers glances down at the young girl while she's being exercised and she, uh, all his hair turns white, bright white instantly. Goatee turns white, hair turns white. He backs off and drops the mirror and and someone else picks it up and um, Constantine jumps off of her and she's left on her back staring up at this full length body length mirror and she you see in the mirror only the demon no child reflection is just this demon and the demon is grotesque it's uh it's what they call a soldier demon in that movie and it's almost like a gangly almost golem from lord of the rings but the top half of the head is sliced off and all you see is brains rotted brains and it's so it's so cool and they proceed to shove this giant mirror out of the second story of this win- window of the second story building they're in, and it shatters on the ground moments before the demon is con- going to come through the spirit realm, through the mirror, into the real world. And it's it's self-contained. It's like five minutes long. It's like boom, boom, sets the tone for the movie, and it's got a lot of really cool little you know bits within it. So I really love that scene. Okay, so that's Constantine from 2005. This is one that I have not seen. Since I saw it in the theater in 2005. Mm. So I remember nothing about it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I need to rewatch this one because number one, I love Keanu and I definitely like Keanu more now than I did then because of stuff like John Wick and just him being a good dude and, uh, you know, trying to get back into the DC movies as well. I guess this wouldn't hurt to rewatch. Is this DC? Yeah, uh, I'm I'm like 99% sure that it's a DC property. I will I will trust you because I do not know. <laughs> yeah, they actually just put out a new animated um, film based on Constantine, but I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to track that down. the 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 movies, the movies, so enter- entertaining, start to finish, and there's it's almost like um, <clears throat> you're thrown into this world that has all these rules that you're just not aware of. Much like John Wick, there's a whole money system in John Wick and rules about fighting in the hotels or not. And with in the Constantine world. There's all, I mean, he knows everything, but you as the audience don't know, you don't know jack shit. So you're just yeah. along for the ride. It's so cool. So fun. For my number five, we're going to go with my oldest one here. This is from 1974, and it's a scene from a film called Abby. This was Abby. This was Abby. <laughs> a woman loved and in love until that night when something evil came looking for a soul to possess. I can't stop thinking about your husband. (laughs) That creep. Forget him. Was this Abby? Now the fun starts. Grab her. Hold her. Hear me, demon. Leave this woman's body. Rated R. Have you ever heard of 1974's Abby? No, no, I've never, never heard that uttered once. Well, you're kind of in for a treat, I guess. So we talked before. We neither one of us have Exorcist on our lists yeah. because it's too obvious. It's it's the most popular possession scene of all time. Yeah. And in 1973, Exorcist was a huge horror hit. And of course, when you have a horror hit, 
there are going to be copycats. We've seen it over and over again, right? We've seen it with the slashers like Halloween and Friday the 13th. There's hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. We've seen it with Scream in 96, tons of knockoffs of that. And Exorcist was no different. Abby is basically the black exploitation version of the exorcist all right i love it so it is funky it is filled with the 70s like leisure suits fucking disco balls it is everything that you'd think of with black exploitation with the 70s and this one is interesting because it takes the catholic stuff gets rid of that bring brings in the uh, the african stuff as this woman named abby is possessed by this African sex spirit. Mm-hmm. Ooh. So she's infused with the spirit because her husband, who is a pastor, he uh, he's like on some archaeological dig and he releases the spirit and it gets into Abby. There are a couple of good scenes in this film. And actually, one of the reasons I watched this movie is because way back, I, w- I had a show planned with a guy that didn't happen, but his topic was top five scenes of penile trauma. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I saw this come up on somebody's list online and I was like, okay, I got to check gotta this watch. out. I got to watch it. <laughs> and there is a really good scene with trauma there, but that's not the scene I'm referring to. Okay. <laughs> so Abby, Abby is possessed and she talks in the typical deep voice when, you know, the demon is trying to come through mm-hmm. and, uh, her husband, the pastor, is he has this couple over to their house because they are um, they want marriage counseling from the pastor. Now, he's not home yet. And the couple comes in, they sit on the couch and Abby comes downstairs and she's like, I'm going to start you off with some marriage counseling. Okay. And they're like, oh, we we didn't know you were into that. And she said, well, I'm just starting. But let me pull up this thing from the Bible. I, I think this is really important and it's really good advice. And she starts reading this passage from the Bible. Okay. And the pastor walks into the room. He gets home. He walks into the room and he's like, oh, Abby, I didn't know you were going to be down here. What are you doing? And she says, why am it? I have a few special tips for Sue. And I didn't want to pass up this golden opportunity. What do you mean, Abby? Tips? Like the facts of life, stupid. All men are not created equal. Better make sure what he's got first. As a matter of fact, I'm gonna take old Long George upstairs and fuck the shit out of him. Abby! That's what I'm gonna do! That's my counseling! Whatever's for today! And she tears her shirt off. Back to the camera so you don't see it, but she tears her shirt open as the pastor, like, runs up, throws his jacket over, over her to cover her up, and then carries her like a bag of potatoes upstairs out of sight it came out of nowhere and it's one of like the funniest things i've ever seen in a movie and it's played of course it's played totally seriously i was just gonna ask (laughs) (laughs) go yeah it's 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 not played for laughs now it's tough to find this movie to watch it way it was like maybe like seven months ago i found a dvd on ebay but it i've since found that you can watch it on youtube um, but when it first came out, WB, like it was a, it was actually a really successful black exploitation film and WB who had put out the exorcist, uh, went after them. And the rumor is that all of the pristine prints 
are gone. Like they took all those prints and got rid of them. Mm. But uh, so it's, that's why it's been very hard to find. They did sue successfully. Really? That, I that's just, yeah, I really like this. Yeah, it's it sucks because like it's it's blatantly um, inspired by The Exorcist and they've never said any different. But sure, like it's not like it was going to take away from The Exorcist's profits. I don't know why they went so crazy on it. Well, I mean, you could do if if they could successfully sue for that, then I mean, Twilight should be sued to existence or, you know, interview with a vampire or any vampire property because they're all just variations of the same thing. But maybe it was just too new and there was not enough precedent set yet i guess that's that's a shame yeah i mean i get i guess that that's possible um and i want to add before we get to our number 4s i want to add that uh, the person that plays abby is carol speed and she is really really great she gets fourth billing here which i think is just kind of um well, i think it was a product of its time because she was a female but she was great as abby she was also in like the Disco Godfather, which is another crazy good movie, and uh, the New Centurions too. So, um, if you do get a chance, look it up on YouTube. There's just some gold in here, including, including an exorcism scene on a disco dance floor. Oh hell yeah! I was already <laughs> gonna watch it, but now it's gonna be like as soon as I turn this off, Abby's going on. <laughs> Abby, 1974. Okay. Yes, that is my number five. Can I say that? It is so funny that you talk. You mentioned penile trauma, uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, shameless plug uh, for the podcast for middle class film class. Our 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 movie that we're reviewing uh, t- that releases tomorrow is Antichrist, which has oh god damn it both male and female <laughs> genital trauma in, all in one package. So happy trails. <laughs> yes, that is actually a film that I've never seen. And the reason I've never seen it is because I know about those scenes and mm. I have no desire like you with Saw. Yeah, it's like, man, when he comes to penile trauma or just genital trauma, I have a uh, I have a very low tolerance for that stuff. I think Stay in film. far away because it is not it is not shy. I mean, there's it's borderline pornography, uh, the movie itself, but it's actually, you know, going off on a tan it is an actually well-made movie it's Lars von Trier so it's I mean he knows what the hell he's doing uh, Joseph hated it Joseph had to watch some scenes in film school and <laughs> I he, can't wait to listen to that episode <laughs> he made it this far without having to watch the full thing and it was a listener pick so here we go <laughs> oh yeah I'm gonna skip watching that movie and I'm just gonna go straight to yeah, the podcast yeah do that <laughs> <laughs> all right Pete number four for you on possession scenes uh, number four for me is an un- non-traditional possession scene. It's not what most people would think of as a possession, but it absolutely works. This is from Being John Malkovich from 1999. My name is Craig Schwartz, and I have an interview with Dr. Lester. Please have a seat, Mr. Juarez. My name is Schwartz. My name is Schwartz. Which of these two letters comes first, this one or this one? The symbol on the left is not a letter, sir. Damn, you're good. Do you know that I don't even know your name or where you work? And 50 other lines to get into a girl's pants. (laughs) So, honey, you thought any more about us having a baby? I think that maybe we should just wait and see if this job thing pays off. There's a tiny door in my office, Maxine, and it takes you inside John Malkovich. There's no such thing as a hole into somebody's brain. Yes, there is. Oh, yeah, it totally works. Yeah, for... The first half of the movie, so the, the premise of the movie is that uh, John Cusack plays a kind of a sad sack. Uh, he's just, he's a, a, a puppeteer with no 
no outlet for his creativity. So he's he's just working random odd jobs, and he gets this job at this bizarre building, uh, working on this seventh and a half floor, and a filing. He's got very good finger control because he's a puppeteer, and he finds this tiny door behind a file cabinet that when you go into it, it's leak like leads into um, like Narnia, but instead of Narnia, you go into the brain and the mind of Hollywood actor uh, John Malkovich, who exists within <laughs> the world of the movie. Um, and he just watches, he just like in his head, he sees what he's doing. He can hear him like munching away at his cereal at, for breakfast. And that's it. That's all he does. And about after about a, a few minutes, he's spit out on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> with so no, bizarre with no idea what the hell just happened or where he is so halfway through the movie he spends enough he's obsessed becomes obsessed with this whatever it is this uh, universe this uh you know glitch in the universe and he he begins to realize that he has sm small amounts of control over john malkovich's uh, body and his uh, uh motor functions and eventually he gets to the point where he is in full control of John Malkovich and can stay in his mind, in his body for long periods of time. And essentially what he does is he, he uses the, um, the celebrity of John Malkovich, um, superstar John Malkovich, to uh, catapult his puppeteer career. And it turns into this bizarre story about him making these like life-size puppets and he's got it's Broadway plays with these human-sized puppets. It's it's very strange. I have to I have to think that uh, Leos Carax probably uh, has watched this movie many times uh, after watching Annette. Um, but uh, the world, the th the reason I really like it is that the rules of the Being John Malkovich universe are never explained, and I was not expecting it to go in this direction. And but once you get on board with the low ceilings of the seventh and a half floor. And the bizarre training video and all the unknowns that you're kind of propelled through as the as the viewer. So once you accept the strange rules or lack of rules to this universe, um, you're exposed to this quote unquote possession. And the thing I really like about it is that it's not religious, it's not otherworldly, it's not demonic, it's something completely different. And it feels like it works within that world. Um, so and then at the very end too, it's the extended possession scene, uh, you know, so-called so possession scene. At the very end, you you do get some sort of resolution, maybe not what you want. Uh, some people hate the ending. I think it's perfect, but uh, yeah, being John Malkovich is a trip. That's a great pick. That's one that didn't even cross my mind, but totally works. And I, I'm completely in love with this movie. The Criterion disc is highly recommended. There are some like scene specific audio commentaries with both uh, Spike Jones, the director and uh, Michelle Gondry, which is pretty cool. That's interesting. Very cool. All right. Uh, let's see. Going down the line here, we're going to go with 2020's Possessor. The results are normal. Anything you want to flag? No, no, I'm fine. Mom, hi, darling. How was your trip? Dull. Extraordinarily dull. Our next contract's a big one. The target is the CEO of the largest operation in the U.S. He'll be binding to Colin Tate. We can't afford any mistakes on this one. Ready? 
I'm going to go with the opening scene of Possessor. Have you seen this film? Yeah, I, I love it. And I don't think enough people have seen it. It's great. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Um, Possessor is Brandon Cronenberg film, David Cronenberg's son, and follows the this like secretive government organization. Actually, they're not even a government organization. They're just like a private organization that uses these, this brain implant technology to allow their agents to inhabit other people's bodies. And this is how they carry out assassins. So if you have to assassinate, like, we'll just say a high-ranking government official, you could get into somebody's brain that's inside their inner circle in order to assassinate them. Yeah, it's great. Great concept. It's an awesome film. And yeah, it's a great concept. I think in my original re review, my only real complaint was that I wanted more of this world. Yeah. Like, I want to see a, a Netflix miniseries in this world. Ooh, that's cool. There are some some cool assassination scenes, but I'm just going to touch on the opener, the opening scene to this film, because I don't want to give anything away. Mm. But uh, it follows this group of women, and you're just thrown into this world, mind you. So you we follow this group of women. They're walking into this like high-profile, high-class party. You got people mingling. You got people eating hors d'oeuvres. You got people just like chopping it up, having drinks. And this one young African-American woman walks out of her, her line of, of uh, like-dressed females, picks up a knife, and walks up to this well-to-do man and just plunges the knife into his neck. This is in full view of everybody. Stabs him in the neck. This is a Cronenberg movie, so blood just starts gushing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this guy's not going to survive this. It's like right in his artery. But he falls on the ground... And then she stabs him what seems like 30 more times oh, yeah. in the uh, in like the body area. And she's just going nuts on him. He's like a fucking baked potato afterwards. <laughs> and uh, the one of the things about Possessor is that in this world, you have to kill the host in order to be released. Mm. And normally in this scenario, you'd pick up your weapon and you'd shoot yourself in the head. This unlucky person who you've taken the body of is dead in real life but you as the agent wake up back in your in your uh, like they have these assassination rig chairs and that's where you'd wake up well she points the gun in her mouth but can't pull the trigger for some reason which starts the complications of the movie so in order to get out of the scene she has to basically perform suicide by cop so the cops come in they're like Gun's drawn, put the gun down. She's got a gun out and she points it at the officers so they will kill her. And that's where this movie kicks off. It gets way wilder, way more nuts. Um, there's another amazing assassination scene. And I will say it's one of the most brutal scenes I think I've ever seen. And I did not want to include it because I think it's best to see that one without knowing anything about it. Yeah. But uh, wow. Watch the unrated one. Yeah, that is a great, I mean, this is a great pick for one fantastic movie. The dreadful tone and like bleak tone is is perfect. And you're right, that second assassination or I guess maybe second or third assassination. Ooh, it's rough. Mm. Brutal. <laughs> yeah, there are. Uh, yeah, there there's brutality in that uncut version that I, I don't think I've seen very many films. And uh, Possessor just does a great job of putting a new twist on that possession, uh, like the, the possession genre, I think. 
number three for me. Uh, this movie is one of my favorite scary movies of all time. I wouldn't call it a horror movie. This was like the first movie that I saw that people started classifying as like elevated horror, which mm. I think gets stuck in a lot of people's craw as like a title. But it's it's more like artistic scary movies. And uh, this is uh, Robert Eggers' The Witch from 2014. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray. I saw this in theaters in, uh, I'm from the Sacramento area and I had to drive out to Davis to go watch it at this little small art house theater out there. And it was only about 25 people in the audience uh, of the theater holds about 50. And it was like, un unlike any movie I'd seen. And I was like completely captivated by it. And a big part of it was this possession that happens halfway through the movie. And um, I, I know it's, I know it's kind of a, we're going to be talking about a lot of spoilers in this, so I guess I, I won't worry about it, but um, The Witch is set in, I want to say like late 1600s um, America, colonial America, uh, I believe, and there's a family that's exiled from their like um, Quaker commune, and they're living on the edge of a, a woods, and there's this witch of the woods that is the kids are always you know trying to scare each other with, and at one point, the the youngest or i guess the the oldest son Caleb he ventures into the woods um for good reasons but he gets um entranced by this beautiful witch this coven and she uh she puts a spell on him or possesses him in some way but that that's not what we're that's not exactly what i'm talking about he 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 wanders himself naked and afraid back to the their little the little house that they have on the plains and when they find him, the family finds him, they take him up to the attic of their little tiny hand-built home, and then you're revealed that he is possessed by a witch or the devil, and your bedside, uh, courtside seats to this um, family experience. It's the mother, the father, Thomason, the young 15 or 16-year-old daughter, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, first like big role. And then these two shithead twins that are like five or six, annoying as all hell. The whole movie, you're like, I hate, I hate Mercy. I hate Mercy and um, what is the, the Jonas, Jonas and Mercy. These two annoying little kids that are constantly bugging at their, at their older sister. And the parents are telling everybody, okay, we, we got to pray over Caleb. Everybody say your prayers over Caleb and we're, say the Lord's Prayer. And they all gather together, and the two twins can't remember the Lord's Prayer. And mind you, this is 1600s. Every single person, they basically live by the Bible. They pray multiple times a day. So all they do is pray, pray to God and harvest corn. And, um, <laughs> and they, forget, they forget the Lord's Prayer, the most common prayer th th there is. And uh, not only does the parent, the dad is chastising them, Ralph Innocent chastising the hell out of them, uh, they eventually fall on their back and they start speaking in tons and way flailing about. And it's so, it's almost like, yeah, I go, these bastards, I hope they, hope they get taken by the <laughs> demon. But they're in the background flailing away, 
both cl- clearly possessed while the family is praying over Caleb. And then as soon as Caleb wakes up from his trance, the twins stop. The demon, you're, you assume the demon moves from them back to Caleb or focuses on Caleb. And Caleb wakes up and gives the monologue to end all monologues for preteen actors. And it is, have you, have you seen The Witch? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, that that little monologue that he gives, where he's staring up into the heavens, and he's addressing basically God directly. And uh, I won't even try to quote it because it's all done in like 16th century speak. <laughs> oh, it's oh, it's good. The emotion is good. Physically, you could just see his chest writhing with this all these deep breaths that he's taking. And then he lays back down after finishing his basically prayer to God and just dies just like that. And you see all the grief that comes along with that from a mother grieving for her son. And then you see the twins wake up and come to it. And this presence is gone from the family, but it's the family's now destroyed. It's they've lost a young baby earlier in the movie. They lose their, their oldest son. They have their families being ripped apart. And, um, people might not argue that it's necessarily a possession because he doesn't exhibit powers and he doesn't do, you know, a bunch of groaning and speaking in tongues and all that. Although the, the twins do, but Caleb being possessed by whatever it is, is just a, it gives me uh, chills just thinking about that scene. Yeah. I would say that that definitely counts. Oh, good. <laughs> I was worried about that one. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're a, a big Eggers fan because he, the lighthouse made your drinking scenes list too. Oh yeah. I forgot it did. It's uh the, the Northman's coming soon and it can't come soon enough. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> yeah. I will look for your episode on that as well after I watch it. Oh boy. I'm going to watch it back to back in the theater. My number three is not nearly as good or as interesting as the witch. It is bizarre though this is my first pick where it's not a human being possessed but rather a train yes a train becoming possessed by the devil this is in the movie beyond the door three also known as death train and also known as train amok you guys do you realize how lucky you are you have the chance for $800 to witness an ancient Balkan rite, something that happens once every hundred years. What? Or a muck train or something. Yeah, it's bizarre. Okay. Um, so a little back, a little background here. Beyond the Door was like not a huge horror movie, but it was like a decently received horror movie, I guess. And then Shock came out. And shock in Italy, they called that Beyond the Door 2, hmm. only to get people in the, into the seats. And then this one comes out, and it has, again, nothing to do with Beyond the Door or Beyond the Door 2. And they just call it Beyond the Door 3 to get butts in seats. This is from 1989. And it's about a group of uh, American students. They're from L.A., and they travel to the Balkans, to Yugoslavia. Hmm. And they're going to go to see, for class, a rare local ritual that happens once every 100 years. I'm going to pause here because there's a train going by. (laughs) It's the train amok coming for you. (laughs) True. (laughs) No, I've never heard of any of those titles you just just mentioned. And the the whole like 70s and 80s phenomenon of naming a movie four different names blows me away (laughs) still all the time. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a lot, a lot easy. It's a lot easier now to like, uh, get people into seats because of the internet, like just based on what your movie is. But back then you had to kind of rip stuff off and toss stuff like cruel jaws is one of them or, um, which was, I think it was cruel jaws that was also marketed as jaws five. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. The, you yeah. have you have a, a, a profound knowledge of these uh, '70s and '80s movies that just completely miss me. So I, that's one of the <laughs> reasons why I love listening to your show is is even even the Vinegar Syndrome stuff that you don't that doesn't land on you, and you, you give it an honest shot, and you're like, this movie by all accounts is kind of a mess, but Vinegar Syndrome <laughs> treated it with love and care. So here we go. <laughs> yeah, dude. The the more I can consume from that era, the the better because I, I just it. I. Yeah, it's just they're cool time capsules. Mm-hmm. And this one, by the way, is no different. So back to Beyond the Door 3. These teenagers, they they come to Yugoslavia. They want to see this ritual. It's a pagan ritual. It's only performed once every hundred years. And they get stuck with this local professor. His name's uh, his name's pronounced Andromalek. That's his name, Andromalek. <laughs> Played by Bo Svensson. He's only on screen for a little while, but he makes an impact. And uh, he's, of course got nefarious uh he's got nefarious plans for these kids because he wants to lure them into deadly traps he wants them to be sacrifices to satan hmm. and they're going to take the one co-ed that's a virgin and use her to bring satan back to life by impregnating her with the prince of darkness mm. so that's your setup here now they come into like they they come into Yugoslavia. They get on this boat. They go to this um, like far off land. This place is nowhere near the airport, and they're set up in these little wooden cabins at night. And the uh, the the pagans they come and they light fire to these cabins. They lock the doors. They light fire to the cabins, and a couple of them get out and they jump onto this train in an effort to escape. Now, the scene in question here is where the train becomes possessed. <laughs> By the way, there is no rhyme or reason to what happens in this film. Nothing is explained, and it makes no sense. I love it. But yeah. this train is possessed by the devil, and it, like, it's a long train, but the, the first three cars, including the locomotive portion, break off because they are controlled by the devil. And there's three men working on this train. And in this scene, all three die horrible deaths. First off, you've got like the guy that's outside checking the track to make sure that it's safe. And he gets dragged under the train and it slowly, slowly inches forward until his head pops off on the tracks. Oh, no. The second guy that's like filling the, the oven with coal. And all of a sudden, like he just gets sucked into the coal oven. Again, there's no reason for it. It just the doors open and he gets sucked into the to the hot fire. <laughs> and then there's a third guy that's trying to connect the the part that's split off from the from the devil train and it basically squishes him in between oh. the two sections of train before it takes off. I will say there are some memorable death scenes in Beyond the Door 3. None of them make sense. <laughs> But they are there are some some pretty cool shots in here. I I would recommend searching it out just for the pure insanity of it. It's not one that you're going to want to take seriously. It's one of those films that you're going to want to, you know, 
drink some beer mm-hmm. and, and watch with a couple of friends to really have the best time. But <laughs> it is bizarre. It's got some really interesting scenes. Th- those sound like three fantastic death scenes. And I can't think of another way to die by a train, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> this, this train, by the way, um, again, like I said, it makes no sense. This train also can control the tracks in uh, front of it. Uh, yeah. And at one point, the train goes off-roading <laughs> and then finds its way back to tracks and never slows down. It's going through the Yugoslavian forest, and it's just fine. And it's just the movie that we're in. It's Well, it's, I mean, they set precedent in it, and uh, the sequel for uh, the Polar Express is the sequel to Beyond the Door 3, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> yep, also known as Beyond the Door 4 in Italy. <laughs> was, do you think that uh, Tom Hanks was the one that possessed the, the train in this movie? Yes, definitely. <laughs> That's beautiful. I, um, it doesn't. It looks like it might be... Oh, this is a vinegar, vinegar syndrome release. Interesting. Okay, cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna check this one out too. I'm gonna have like a, just a, a marathon of these uh, schlocky possession movies uh, in your honor. <laughs> you have to. Last train to hell, right here. All aboard. Oh boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> my uh, my number two uh, is going to be another favorite horror movie of mine, and it's a, a more. This is the most recent uh, on my uh, collection here. This is from 2018, Hereditary. It's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious. My mother was a very secretive and private woman. It's Grandma. You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you were a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you. She was a very difficult woman, which maybe explains me. I recognize you from your mother. What? Sometimes I swear I can feel them in the room. Oh my God! Uh, written and directed by Ari Aster, another just powerhouse of, of scary filmmakers. Uh, Robert Eggers and Ari Aster, two just the the first two movies blew me away in, in, in both. So, um, have you seen Hereditary, Jason? I have, and this one's on my honorable mentions. Is it okay? Cool. So this is full. This is going to be another one full of spoilers. So if you haven't seen Hereditary, uh, go watch it first. But uh, the plot of Hereditary is it's it's more of a family drama about um, a mother played by Toni Collette and her strange daughter who she doesn't quite connect with is uh, there. It's in the wake of the 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 family matriarch's death. The grandma dies um, before the movie starts, and you're basically left with this strange puzzle being built along the memories uh, with the memories of the grandmother. And you soon realize that the mother was uh, Queen Lee. She was like this, this leader of this weird sub cult that, that um, worships as a demon called payment. He's one of like the seven Kings of hell uh, as you're, as you come to find out in the movie. Well, if you watch it enough, you kind of get the idea that Charlie, the young daughter is maybe possessed the entire time, but in a passive role. Like she, she may or may not have um, the demon payment inside her. Um, and on some at some point in early in the movie, in the first act, uh, she is uh, killed in an extreme fashion that you'll never <laughs> ever ever forget. 
Yeah. And and then you watch Tony Collette grieve. Um, I guess two of, two of my back to back of my choices have grieving mothers in them, um, and sh- her performance is it's a goddamn travesty that she wasn't nominated for anything at the Oscars that year, um, because because it's a horror movie, you can't be serious. Um, so she's uh, Charlie's now dead, and this ro- this demon now is roaming, and it this essentially starts to uh, vex their their son Peter. And he is tortured by this demon and the the, the dis, like disciples of this strange cult uh, that essentially are, are believe that he's going to be the reincarnation of Payman. Um, you find this out much like at the very very end of the movie, but this whole time he's just being tormented. He's not possessed, but he's tormented. The possession scene comes when the mother, played by Tony Collette, Annie, she essentially welcomes this demon into her house and into her body she's tricked into becoming uh, a medium by one of the cultists and there is a scene that happens right after her husband is is burned alive another terrifying scene uh that she you see a physical transformation there's this shimmer that's been kind of not not omnipresent but it's here and there around the movie it's kind of leading the characters down different paths and this shimmer enters Tony Collette's body and she has a physical transformation. You see that she becomes a different person. And from then on out, <clears throat> what you're left with is a smorgasbord of supernatural activity, body horror, self-mutilation, all framed within the relationship of Annie basically going after her son Peter. And just just the visuals. There's there's a scene when um, Peter runs trying to escape his mother who's trying to kill him. Um, she's floating on the ceiling, chasing after him through the house, uh, and then he he gets up into the attic uh, to try to run away. And you hear this slamming, very quick slamming on the on the door that leads up to the attic on basically on the floor of the attic. And it cuts to her Annie slamming her head over and over and over again on the underside of this door. It's chilling. But what's worse than that is how Annie leaves our leaves our world and. Uh, essentially still floating finds herself in the attic looking down at her her teenage son who's scared out of his mind and she's floating above him and you see her start to cut her own head off with a piano wire that you you saw earlier you saw a piano uh, opened up earlier you don't even realize what it was and the sound of her sawing her head off with a piano wire and then the head falling onto the ground is like goes right to your soul it's Oh, mm-hmm. oh, it's so it's so <laughs> rough. So, not not only is that possession insane. Right after that, Peter falls out or jumps out of the window to try to escape this, and then Payman, released from the body of Annie, goes right into Peter's body, and you see the shimmer leading him into this uh, treehouse outside. And what <clears throat> it's almost like this hor- horrific, beautiful transition from. The fin- this insane high energy finale and it's it simultaneously intensifies the insanity of what the concepts of the possession and the demon and all that stuff while having this like come down energy and, and almost cheerful tone resolving like the fu- the f- finale where he payment is seated on the throne and all these cultists are are worshiping him and half of them don't have their heads and it's 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 fucking weird um <laughs> It's that's one way to say it. Yeah, 
it was one of the most graphic movies in a lot of ways. And I mean, I don't, I don't know if Ari Aster has something about heads or it's just this movie in, in particular, but Jesus Christ, the head trauma in this. <laughs> there are probably four four or five different scenes in Hereditary that I'll never forget that I really want to forget. Oh, God. <laughs> and it's a great movie. It's so good. It's just like those scenes that stick with you are like, oh, the, the Charlie death in particular is one that I will never get out of my brain because I'm also like, I'm unreasonably afraid of large groups of ants. Oh, really? Yeah, well, that's one of my phobias, like large groups of ants. And uh, that head on the ground, ugh. it gets me. Oh, it gets me. Yeah. Um, two two things about this movie. Number one, I saw it in theaters with a big group of people. I was uh, five or six people. And, and Brianna, my girlfriend, she, she after that scene, she left. She left the theater and drove home. So I had to get I had to hitch a ride <laughs> wow. and went home. <laughs> oh, uh, that that was uh, memorable. Um, and number two for the movie or for the for the podcast, we we reviewed Hereditary. It was one of my picks, or maybe it was Tyler's pick. But my my mother asked, "Hey, can I be part of the show? I'll call in and you know, give you my picks. What movie are you guys watching?" I said, "Hereditary. It's on Amazon Prime." And to her credit, God bless her, she watched that movie three times in one week. And then oh my gosh, your mom's a champ. I know she is. She called in and gave us her honest review and was like, "What the fuck did you make me watch?" <laughs> so that's awesome. Yeah, fun times. Hereditary number two. Oh, my number two is uh, again not as fun as that one. <laughs> not as fun as that one. But um, I'll argue that it is the best prom night movie. This one's from 1987. It's Hello Mary Lou Prom Night Two. <laughs> Mary Lou Maloney is back for the prom, and she's going to make sure it's a night you'll never want to remember. Hello, Mary Lou. 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 H
the wick, like the detonator from the stink bomb, lights her dress on fire and burns her to death on stage. And she looks up and sees that Billy is the one responsible. So that's the opening of this film. That's the opening of this film. You fucked up, Billy. And then we cut to 30 years later, and Billy is now the principal of this school. So... (laughs) What? Played by Michael Ironside, by the way. Oh, awesome. So we get a good Michael Ironside performance, yep. And uh, he's the principal. We have this student, Vicky, Vicky Carpenter. She's going looking for a prom dress in the school prop room because her mom won't buy her a new dress because her mom is overly religious. And while Vicky's searching through these old prop room dresses, she finds an old trunk that contains Mary Lou's prom queen accessories. And when she puts those on... Mary Lou's spirit goes into her body. So now she's possessed by 1957's Mary Lou. Wow. And uh, there's a lot of cool scenes in here with possession. And there's two that I want to call out. There's one where where uh, Vicky is going after this girl in the locker room. And the girl hides in a locker. Vicky, again possessed by Mary Lou, takes the other lockers around her and smashes them all together. And you just see like blood ooze out of the crushed locker. Oh, great. It's an awesome scene. But the end, the, the end scene of prom night two is, I think it's really well done. So of course it happens at a prom and stuff's going down. Vicky is going crazy and somebody shoots her. And from the bullet hole, reaches through the actual hand of Mary Lou. So Mary Lou, basically like a zombie version of Mary Lou, climbs out of the bullet hole in Vicky's neck. And you see Vicky's body on the ground and the hand of Mary Lou coming up through the body to start this transformation. Mm -hmm. The head pops through. It's got great gore effects. It's like a skeleton, but the eyes are moving around. Cool. Uh, it's, It's really good. It's a really fun movie. I think I don't think Prom Night 1 or 2 get the attention that they deserve. They are both like really amazing slices of exploitation mm. and Prom Night 2 is one of those that doesn't take itself too seriously. Like Mary Lou while she's killing people is humming songs from the 50s. There was actually Prom Night 3 which is a direct sequel to Prom Night 2 unlike Prom Night 1 where like Mary Lou's spirit comes back and that one goes full horror comedy in prom night three. This one takes itself a little bit more seriously, but it's never like Friday the 13th levels of serious. I'll say that. Okay. Gotcha. Can I, can I ask you to repeat something you just said? Did you, yeah. did you say Canucksploitation? Canucksploitation. Yeah. It's like its own <laughs> little genre of, uh, of Canadian exploitation films. That is a totally new word for me. I enjoy that word. Oh man, I I'm hoping at some point that somebody picks top five exploitation films, and I could just like really dive into that world because there are some good ones. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm in awe of your movie knowledge, Jason. <laughs> if you ever want, if you ever want to tackle some exploitation, you let me know. I'll okay. I'll send you a small list. Okay, thank you. <laughs> well, great great pick. Now oh. I hadn't hadn't seen the second prom night, but Michael Ironside is a delight. So. Maybe I'll have to. Oh, yeah. And he's he's really good in it. Okay. All right. Pita Beta from Middle Class Film Class. What's your number one on top five possession scenes? Okay. This is, I almost left it off my list because it's almost too obvious. It's not The Exorcist, but it is one of the, I mean, it's, in my opinion, it's 
easily the best Possession's standalone scene ever, and this is from the movie Possession, 1981. I've completed my job. That's why we want to rehire you. It's out of the question. And what would be the reason for your refusal? Family. Maybe all couples go through this. You have someone? Yes. Do you sleep with him? infamous subway tunnel scene um have, have you seen the entire movie the possession of possession yeah i think we we might have discussed it right after i saw it okay okay um, just like impassive. oh yes yes i do remember that and it's it's one of these ones that it's so hard to find that it's when you find another person who's seen it you're you're just you know you almost have to commiserate with it because it's so bonkers <laughs> um I didn't love the movie quite a, quite a, as much as I think a lot of people do, um, and but this one scene, um, Possession's a movie, a story basically of infidelity and mistrust um, mixed with like a continuous dread, especially tr- surrounding the child of the two main characters played by Sam Neill and Isabel Ajani, I think that's her name, um, and uh, their son, their young child Bob, which is a very weird name. <laughs> for that always struck me as funny when i was watching this movie as well yeah his, his name is uh his name's jim um but uh most scenes in the movie you feel like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop like there's this tr- like tremendous tension they build up in a lot of scenes there's a almost like a, a domestic dispute in a kitchen with an electric carving knife that you just you don't know what's going to happen but you know it's bad um and they're all all the all the all the scenes are kind of like that like you don't know what it is it's kind of a mystery and you know she's the main character she's 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 going through something but you know sam neil is as her husband doesn't know what it is and he thinks he's she's just cheating on him but you find out that it's so, so much worse than that um and just about every scene in the movie is full attention besides the subway scene and then maybe the finale or the reveal um so in this scene uh you probably, if you haven't, if you don't think you've seen the scene, you've probably seen it on movie lists on like Watch Mojo or you know Ranker or any of those ones where it's like the most physical performance, over the top, whatever, best one takes. Although it's not a one take, there's two cuts in the in the shot. And I rewatched it before we started recording today just to see if I could, in good conscience, leave it off the list, and it instantly went to number one. It's so it's so good. So. um she is basically getting off of a subway and she's walking down this dank, wet subway tunnel somewhere in England, uh, I believe. And she is chuckling to herself and she's laughing hysterically, uncontrollably. And it's not like a like a scripted laugh. It's like an erratic laugh that some of it comes from the belly. Some of it's like a shrieking laugh. And then it turns into her slamming her body in in this iconic blue dress against the wall um convulsing she's rolling on the floor screaming and shrieking at the top of her lungs with like guttural grunts and there are no special effects there is no camera tricks there's no overlays it's just this woman having it out in this echoey tunnel and the sound of her shrieks and her bellows echoing howling through this subway tunnel is like haunting in itself 
but putting yourself in the in the shoes of the actress, there is no regard for her well-being. She's Mm-mm. convulsing, whipping her head and body around, and by the end of the scene, she ends up covered in milk and sweat and subway floor water, and oh boy, it's 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 like like looking into something that you shouldn't be watching. Almost, it feels dirty to watch. Um, so her unbridled screaming and moaning and grunting is is I've never seen anything quite like it before. And then the ending, as strange as the scene is, the ending is even more unexpected because um, she ends up on her knees in almost a fugue state, staring into the uh, abyss, uh, the you know the proverbial abyss. You got this thousand yard stare, and this blood and pus or something is oozing out of her you know between her legs and out of like her shoulders and armpits like streaming through her hair and it looks like if you're a sick bastard that watches like dr pimple popper videos and you get used to <laughs> the fuck is that you never heard of that <laughs> uh, no. sidebar there is a, 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 in, a tiktok channel and or instagram channel or whatever that's called dr pimple popper and it's just this doctor that releases people's worst cysts and blackheads and you know this all the grossest things Jesus. you don't want to it's like a watching a train wreck you you can't look away but it's so gross and every every once in a while you see like a lump on someone's arm and they cut it open and it's just like cream <laughs> cream porn comes out you're like oh my god that's a human being is coming out of them and that's what you feel like when you watch that last scene and you find out later in the movie that she was miscarrying at the end of that scene and that reveal makes it so much darker after the movie re- reveals that in a movie that's full of insane things that movie that's that one scene is just unbelievable it's it's a triumph it's so it's so dark and good yeah i think that scene well that movie in general scarred her for life just playing she's she's at a hundred that entire movie for the most part her acting performance is amazing and it's one of like actually a couple of them on, on your list could fit into that tony collette's performance in hereditary is amazing but isabella johnny in possession is incredible and even if you just watch that scene on youtube you, you should watch that scene on youtube but try to find the whole movie because wow it is a revelation i think her performance and Sam Neill. Sam Neill's great in it too, but them them as a couple acting against each other, wow, just the best part of the film for sure. Yeah, she gives off for sure Shelley Duvall from The Shining Vibes, which also ruined her. Um, so yeah. I, I know that they kind of have a similar look anyways, but it's yeah. You you're listen to listen to the good advice from Jason. Watch it on YouTube, but seriously, watch the whole movie and then uh send me an email of how much you hate me afterwards. you know if i was doing the if i was doing my actual like the the best possession scenes Mm -hmm. exorcist would be at the top and possession would probably have been number two as it is it's on my honorable mentions because i'm not that kind of list maker and i go for (laughs) weird stuff and i try to bring people into movies that they've probably never heard before yeah and my number one I'm guessing is going to be a film that a lot of people have never heard of. Oh boy. This one is from 1987. And the film is called Retribution. By fate, 
two men are born on the same day. By destiny, they die at the same moment. By a supernatural act, they both come back. One good, one evil, one body. George, what's going on over there? George, are you all right? Suggesting that your patient is possessed? By whom? It is a time for fear. It is a time for terror. It is a time for retribution. And the reason why I chose it for number one is because the premise of retribution might be one of the weirdest premises that I've seen for a possession movie. It's about this manic depressive artist played by Dennis Lipscomb, who had like a huge TV career um, throughout the 70s and 80s. But he plays this depressive artist named George Miller. And this guy tries to kill himself on Halloween night. And they make it a point to say it was Halloween night, even though Halloween factors into this not at all. <laughs> like there's no reason why it needed to be Halloween night aside from seeing masks um, when he jumps. But he decides to try and kill himself by jumping off of a building. And it's a pretty short building. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's no surprise for me that this guy lives. But when he is in this like flatline state where he's between life and death, a murdered gangster's soul enters his body. And then George wakes up and he's in the hospital. And so he's got two souls inside of him. He's got his own. And then he's got this murdered gangster's soul. And when George goes to sleep, his body is taken over by this gangster to go get revenge on those who had murdered him. And George is able to see all this in dreams, but he wakes up and finds out that people are actually dead. Hmm. So that's like the, the setup here. Dennis Lipscomb's look is even crazier. He's got like this very nerdy look to him. He's got a bowl cut, uh, just like the annoying kid Aaron from full house. That's who he reminds me of. Okay. He looks like the grown-up version of a My Buddy doll oh my God. from the 80s. And he looks like nobody would gravitate towards, but the film, of course, positions him to be this person that everybody likes. And he's even kind of a ladies' man, which is so weird. Like, he starts up this relationship with a prostitute <laughs> who's just into him because he's a nice guy. It's like, okay. <laughs> um, but there, there are a couple of really good scenes in here. Uh, the first one is there's this painting scene that for some reason I I really think is hilarious. He goes, he's a painter. After he gets out of the hospital, he goes home, he tries to start painting and he paints with yellow paint, but red paint comes on like as he paints yellow. It, it's actually red. Sweet. And he has this freak out moment where it's just red paint. Whatever he's painting is red. <laughs> but the scene in question here is... He's trying to get revenge against those who had uh, killed him as this gangster. And when he turns into this gangster dude at night, he's got the same look as George Miller, but his eyes are green and then he could do weird shit around him. And he goes to this welding shop to kill this welder. 
and he can take control of people's bodies. Again, no rhyme or reason to his powers. But he walks into this to this shop and the guy's like, I know it's you. Get out of here. You're not killing me tonight. And he takes control of the guy's hand and he turns on the blowtorch. And the guy at first, he's like, I'm not going to let you do this. And and he takes control of his own hand and he drops the blowtorch. But of course, George is too strong as this gangster. And he makes him pick up the blowtorch. And in a very slow motion, he takes his right hand with the blowtorch to his left hand and turns up the heat to where it almost with fire saws his left hand off. So his left hand's sitting there, still moving, by the way. And he is holding his bloody stump, screaming, and George gets onto like a forklift with the, um, it's almost like a chicken wire box on it. Mm-hmm. And he, with his mind, uses the controls on the forklift to drive himself into the guy who's against the wall. And the chicken wire fence goes right up against the guy's face until it squishes. Oh. And you see in slow motion, like you see his nose kind of going like through the chicken wire as it starts pressing up against it until his face just smashes. And it's one of these weird movies that I think is actually it's it's very entertaining. And I don't think it gets much attention when it comes to possession movies. But I think it's a really interesting premise. And uh, it's got such a weird main character. There are so many moments in Retribution that are so like, like they just pick the weirdest thing for that scene. Like he walks into his his, uh, apartment building and there's a dog wearing a costume behind the counter (laughs) or on top of the counter because it's a small dog. And if you're just walking into that apartment building, that's the first thing you see is this dog wearing a costume sitting on the the counter it's so bizarre but yeah that's retribution from 1987 i think it's worth checking out i i, I was while you were reading this it reminded me of uh, there's a an nbc series that didn't like go anywhere uh, starring jason isaacs called awake and it, that's the idea is when he goes to sleep he's in one reality and when he go, wakes up he's in another reality but he's awake in both in this one, when he goes to sleep, he's possessed by this guy, this street thug. Yeah, it's basically like, and oh man, when you see the way, when you see this gangster finally, the one that was murdered, huh. you're like, that's the gangster. <laughs> that's the gangster. Willem, like, Willem it Mopo just does not. Fire. <laughs> yeah. It was, it's, it's bizarre, but I think it's worth watching. I think it's really, really fun. Uh, you've, you've given me like a whole night of uh, fantastic, like schlocky movies that center around or feature at least one possession scene so i'm, I'm looking f- i don't know how i'm gonna find all these uh but um <laughs> but i'm gonna try i'll give i'll give it my damnedest um now i know you probably had some honorable mentions on your list yes i had um one that uh my girlfriend's gonna be pissed off that i left off the list is uh, the wailing from 2016 um fantastic korean horror movie uh possession sort of movie um there, it, there's not any one like possession scene, but there's this whole like 10 minute segment back and forth where they're exercising this little girl who they believe to be possessed by the devil and watching this like ultra cultural possession done by like the town, the local village shaman is so cool. I love seeing other cultures and their like uh, rituals and stuff. So that's very cool. 
um, the Evil Dead remake, pretty much the entire movie. I actually thought the possession and the and the um, terrifying nature of the possessed girlfriend is is more effective in the remake uh, than in the original. Although I do like the original better, or I should say, Evil Dead Two better. Um, let's see here, Beetlejuice, the dancing scene with uh, everybody at the dinner table, almost made the list. Um, Upgrade that whole movie is is almost like a modern te- uh, techno uh, possession movie. Freaking great movie. Um, the Matrix Reloaded, where Agent Smith gets into the body of Bane and remains remains there in the real world for a long time. That almost made my list. And then um, the Empty Man, which is I feel like was an underrated horror movie of uh, a few years ago. That's you don't even realize is a possession movie until the very end. Oh, that one I haven't seen yet. Cool. First, first half challenges you. You need to stick with it, but the second half's worth it. Aside from the ones you mentioned, Hereditary, Possession, Evil Dead 2 was also on my list, and Exorcist, which I already mentioned. I also had Child's Play 3, which there's a great scene in Child's Play 3 where they're doing a military exercise with blanks, and Chucky fills the guns with real bullets instead. Yes. 2017's Get Out. Mm counts i think and there are a couple of scenes in there that i could have added and then one that my wife brought up that i didn't even think about but i was like oh that's a great one for the honorable mentions is brave when the mom possesses uh, the body of a bear oh yeah the whole movie all of those nearly made my list so shout out to my wife for the brave one (laughs) pete we know you have antichrist that will be up by the time this launches on middle class film class what else can we look forward to or look for in your world to listen to oh thank thank you for asking um the show is the movies that we review are done at random we have a spinning wheel of destiny we fill it with some of our picks (laughs) and some of the fan picks so literally it's a spin of the wheel um on the wheel right now which i'm staring at to our right we have um uh, let's see, Starship Troopers. We have uh, Hell, the original Hellraiser. I just put music, this that Sia movie that just came out last year on because it's oh, no. so bad. It's so bad. Um, <laughs> and then Life is Beautiful from Joseph. And then the rest of them are essentially fan picks. So if if you want us to review a movie, we we spend uh, the first one episode a week or one half of the episode a week. We do Gavin Chatter where we talk about movie news and whatever we got going on um play games sometimes play trivia and then the uh the second half releases later in the week and that we deep dive into any movie of our choice from the wheel so if you want your movie on the wheel send us an email hit the website mcfcpodcast.com everything's there very cool you got to put abby on that wheel you got to put abby on the wheel was there a possession scene that we missed? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it to the show. And if you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some great possession scenes.